Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on a cool autumn day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's programme, I'm delighted to have Steve Wayne alongside me. Steve is the Managing Director of Benjamin Stevens Estate Agents, a leading and award-winning estate agency covering the North West, London, Hertfordshire and Bedfordshire. Um, Steve, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us today. My pleasure, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airways with us. Um, normally, we dive straight into the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate we start with that because it's proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourselves, just how has it affected you and your business in the property sector? Um, bizarrely, we're, we're as busy as we've ever been on the on selling houses at the moment. We've actually recorded our four busiest months in a in a row um we've been in business now 17 years and it's consistently busy out there and it's absolutely mad and it makes no real sense to me um but it Mm. is very busy out there do you think this could be be because of the fact that with the shift toward remote working more people are moving away from city environments and into more rural areas is that something that maybe you've seen yeah, I think that's one of the reasons. I think there's a big reason that people have, um, you know, spent six months in their house and realised actually this house is too small for me. I know my wife thinks our house is now too small, um, which is an expensive problem. Um, but I think people have realised that they want, you know, people don't spend a lot of time in their houses. You know, most people sleep in their houses, maybe have two hours either end of the day, and then they're at work. But when you're suddenly spending 24 hours in your house, you actually realise what you want and what you don't want. Um, and I think it's given time, you know, when over lockdown, we were all very bored and right move and Zoop were very busy with people mm. window shopping, looking. And I think it gave people an opportunity to assess maybe we need a bigger house or maybe, you know, I don't like my wife as much as I did and they're getting divorced. And, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, there's a lot of, of factors which, which mean people move. And I think people over lockdown had the opportunity to really think about it. Um, so at the moment, it's very busy. Obviously, the stamp duty is taking it to a whole nother level. Um, but you know, I think as a business owner, you've just still got to be very wary that it's not going to last and, and, and carry on like this forever. Um, like even the small businesses are busy. It's not a case of, you know, we've been around for a long time. We're market leaders, so we, we're always busy, but we've sort mm. of gone into overdrive. Yeah, I can certainly see where you're coming from from that point of view. And um, in a lot of other industries, even when we start to sort of see the pandemic wind down, there's hopefully a working vaccine and then the virus itself is no longer an issue. They still feel that there may be a COVID hangover in some sectors just because of consumer confidence and continual anxiety. So in a similar vein, do you see this sort of initial burst being in place for maybe one or two years yet and then dying down a little later on down the line? Or can you see there being sort of um, more of a short-term change? Yeah, I think if, I think there's going to be a lot of people who have been, I don't know the right word, maybe arrogant, that they've sort of been on furlough. They think that, you know, they're, they're having the time of their lives not working and you're still getting paid. But the reality is a lot of those people on furlough who haven't been brought back in a lot of industries, obviously things like nightlife and theatre are completely different. But, you know, people who are in recruitment and property who haven't been brought back, probably aren't going to get bought back. And there's going to be a lot of people who aren't expecting to lose their jobs, who are going to lose their jobs. So there's also going to be that adjustment. 
we're already getting not many, but a few people who have agreed to buy houses and then they've lost their jobs and they've been made redundant. And, and one thing, you know, for me especially, over lockdown, I, I, we literally closed the business down. There was me and, you know, a couple of senior members of staff who, who helped. But there was, no, there was no market. But from our block management side, we really learned a lot of lessons. And I think a lot of business owners, and if they didn't, it, it, they're mad you know, really learn a lot about their business. And you never get an opportunity in life where you get a pause in life. And what we knew, me, myself, were able to do is over lockdown, I had a really good look at my business, every single inch of my business, and was able to say, well, do I need that person? Do I need that service? Do I need this? And made some really good adjustments, which have made the business stronger. And I've spoken to a lot of people who are business owners, and they've done the same. And actually, people who probably worked for them for years, they actually realized, well, I don't need 20 staff, 15 will probably get, I'll get away with. I think that there's also going to be a lot of people who have made redundant, who've been in businesses for a long time. And COVID has just been a reason for owners to look at their businesses and adjust the way they're working. Mm. It certainly has been a period of self-reflection. And one of the few positives that we can take from this is that business has innovated a great deal and learnt an awful lot. And it's brought a lot of advancements forward for sure. When your line of work, would you say there is anything that this experience of crisis management, if we call it that, has actually taught you, even though the sector itself has been doing reasonably well? Well, we, we actually run um, two sides of the estate business. And one is a, a hub model, which is like a self-employed model. And um, we went from 15 agents beforehand and, and really struggling with some people to get them into the mindset of, actually, if you work from home, you can still do the same work. We're actually working for homes now become the new normal. We're now up to uh, over 50 agents. And, you know, for us, we don't need offices anymore. And actually giving people that little bit more space and freedom, they actually achieve a lot more. So I think, you know, and we're not alone in this model in our industry. And a lot of people in our industry have adjusted the way they're working. And actually, uh, there was a survey last week, which I read, and it said we spend a third of our day sort of faffing around in offices, mm. chit-chatting. I'm having tea, having coffee, going for lunch, coming back. You know, people procrastinate in offices, answering phones for someone else. And actually, you take that all away from people and they can be a lot more efficient. And then what you're suddenly giving people is a bit more spare time. You know, you see suddenly the, the, the country's changed. That suddenly a lot of people are getting a lot fitter. They're going for walks. They're going for runs. Mm. And actually, people are now almost choosing to have a better quality of life. You know, what's happened with COVID is, is hideous. Um but as a country, we will come out of it in a different mindset. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the uh, the working practices uh, debate, um, mental health and well-being is very much at the uh, the heart of that, isn't it? Because people have found a uh, work-life balance um, as a result of this. But also it has made them realise in some cases that, of course, not everybody has a, uh, a big house and sometimes working from home doesn't quite suit some people. And they do need that office space as well to be able to sort of socialise and get out of the home environment, just not to blur the lines between the home space and the working space. Yeah, with, with our hub model, we actually have two off, large, large office spaces that mm. people can come use as a base. And, and, you know, for me, I've got two children. I've got a seven-month-old and a three-year-old. And over lockdown, it was it was horrendous. Every time I tried to make a phone call, one of them wanted to scream. Um, and, it, and, it, and it's very hard for me. I couldn't work from home. It, it doesn't work. But for some people, they like the, the flexibility. And I think with, with one of the things with the hub model for us, which works brilliantly, is people can come and go as they please. I think, um, you know, the um, 
the, the necessity to be in the office and, and rush to the office now doesn't need to be. I'm sure you've noticed where you are. The roads are packed at the moment, you know, because kids are suddenly not getting on a bus. Parents are taking their kids to, to school. And suddenly the road seems a lot busier. People aren't taking public transport, so they're driving. And it just, you know, if you can give people that flexibility, it really helps with their mental health and just mm. being able to go and exercise in the morning first. The world, you know, COVID has changed the world. It really has. It really, really has. And um, do you think that we'll ever see the office environment as it was returning, Vogue, just relating to our working practice again there? Or do you think that there will be sort of that hybrid model going forward? It's not even that. I think you still need, you know, certain of my certain people who work for me need that, that stability mm. of 930 being micromanaged and working in a certain way. You know, so not everything works for everyone, but we're obviously out in the suburbs, so we don't really have people travelling in on trains. But in central London, you've got twofold. You've got people not wanting to get on a train at the moment, and then you've got people not wanting to be in a busy office. It's not just the offices, it's the commute to the office as well, which is really, you know, stresses people out at the moment. Um, and if you can take that and take that little bit of stress away from them, mm. you know, you also look at some spend an hour getting to work, an hour back, suddenly working from home, you're giving them back two hours a day, and you can have all the money in the world, but you can't buy time. Yep, I certainly agree with uh, where you're coming from uh, there. And uh, thinking about sort of safeguarding the mental health of others, I mean, it can be easy from a leadership perspective, can't it, to almost forget about yourself from time to time because business executives have had to step up during this period and be beacons of inspiration and motivation and also reassurance as well amid all of the uncertainty and the anxiety. But when Obviously, the guidance is sometimes a little bit unclear. Uh, it can get a lot for people, can't it? So as a leader, it's important also to recognise that you have to safeguard your own mental health too and sometimes take a step back, take stock and almost switch off for a little while. Yeah, I, I'm quite lucky. I, 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 when I started my business when I was 22 and I remember six months in being in the shower in the morning and just thinking about what I had to do that day and it just wasn't healthy. And I learned to switch off. So when I'm out of the office, whatever's going on, unless it's you know something massive, which luckily in property you don't really get. We're not we're not doctors, we're not surgeons. You know, nothing's life and death really with us. Um, you know, everything. I I learned to switch off. You know, I get home and I'm with my family. Um, you know, I I'm, I'm very lucky, but I've taught myself to be able to switch off. But you've got to if you can't, you've got to find a hobby. You know, you've got to be able to separate that when you finish the job, it is just that. And work is one thing, but life is another, and you need to be able to enjoy life. Because the reality is you can make all the money in the world, and you look at some of the richest people in the world who've died early from a disease because they haven't looked after themselves. You know, I make sure that I go, I have a personal trainer three times a week and try and eat healthy and try and look after myself because it's wonderful to be successful. It's wonderful to have all these people working with me. But if my physical or mental health isn't where it needs to be, then I'm no good to, to them either. So, you know, you have to look after yourself and you have to put yourself first at some point. But you learn to switch off and, you know, running a mm. business. I do. I'm, I, the, the property industry is quite good. And they have this thing called Agents Together, which is where someone like me mentors younger business people to help them with that sort of problem. And I say to them, you know, you can only do so much. There's only a certain amount of days and people are working at home at 10, 11 o'clock at night. That doesn't help anyone. You don't, your quality of service is poor because you're not really concentrating. And when you're not happy, you're not giving the same service. 
And so, you know, people just need to, you have to switch off. You have to be, you know what? I've done what I can today. Tomorrow's a new day, but you need to enjoy life. You do. You certainly do. And um, thinking about um, over the, the next few months now, just before we do wrap things up on the programme, Steve, just because I'm conscious that we are uh, running short of time. Um, we know that the new normal is going to be in place for quite some time yet, possibly up until the uh, the end of March, um, according to the, uh, the Prime Minister. Um, but over this period of time, what do you think is next for you and for your business? And what is it that you're really hoping to achieve during this time at Benjamin Stevens? Yeah, I, th- I think our, our our aim is to keep on growing, you know, especially with our hub model. You know, a lot of people now are seeing the benefits of being able to be self-employed and having that that freedom. Um, you know, we want to carry on building the business and, you know, keeping our standards high and looking after our staff. And, you know, one of one of our staff this morning had a doctor's procedure, nothing major, but I phoned her this morning to check she was okay and hope that went all right. And, and that's what we want to carry on being. We want to be a company that looks after our staff. You know, we're very much a family, even though we're growing now, we're almost at 80 odd people, you know, and, and growing by the day. You know, for me, it's about looking after your staff and making sure you all succeed together. Um, you know, that's always been our, our, our motto and our aim is that we grow together, we build together and we, you know, we work together. Um, and, and that's what we want to be as a company. And, as you know, we just want to carry on growing it in a steady, um, careful manner. And I think, it, and, and that's the word in this environment is, growth but careful because you've got to be clever because who knows i think we've all learned no one knows what tomorrow brings anymore nobody does know what tomorrow brings absolutely it's very very difficult to really plan ahead with any kind of certainty with everything going on because the short-term future is no longer months it's now a matter of days if not weeks at most so it's a very difficult time for british industry and it's certainly a situation that we'll be keeping an eye on over the course of the year the next few months and just given the amount of variables in this steve and also just how enlightening it's been having you with us on the program this morning i actually think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in the next year and have you back on the show with us just to see how things have changed in the property sector and catch up on how things at benjamin stevens are getting on too We'd love to, we'd love to. I'd certainly welcome that opportunity. I've thoroughly enjoyed having you on with us uh, this morning. And most importantly, until we do uh, touch base um, again in future, hopefully, do take care and stay safe with everything still going on. Thanks, and for you too. I'd reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners tuning in today as well. Do please continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, it was a pleasure to welcome Steve Wayne onto today's programme, Managing Director of Benjamin Stevens Estate Agents. Coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 professional league goals goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, among other clubs. But he remains most renowned for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition. That, of course, came after his treble in England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany at the Old Wembley 54 long years ago now. So Jeff will be joining us very shortly. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might last. 
Absolutely. Oh, thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and Goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, a uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I will not want to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966 when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand. We all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm never going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Tilkowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game's got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss hit it and, it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that, that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to 
uh, there's an element of, 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 of risks uh, of making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for w- what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, whether there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the, the amount of people who were interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony. Um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about going to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. 
um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be around, to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp, who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And that's, just, that's 50 years Harry's been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the, and teach and coach the players to be prepared to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alfred Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined moved from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was, I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach, it's a team coach, who's a teacher, effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character, who's a manager, who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, the wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and from all over the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. 
completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in in those uh, medieval days, you there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's always a free to play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in. Uh, flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders, and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually. But that, that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was had a big influence, going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to 
two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leading age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leading age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about as I... I kind of put it between the two sports which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development either as a cricketer or either as a footballer and it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me I was a midfield player then or centre half at school um, he uh, said I'm going to try you up front he put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically and I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had the one first-class game for Essex, at, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I thought a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game um, the Lancashire up up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games. For those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a midfield mm. player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60 62, 63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But... What was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great... Uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise... It's funny how you look at... I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to 
other balls and not just tipping balls at it. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you could possibly wish to meet. But he was a joker. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd you, have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky. Very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banks, he was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flat. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course over the years, hopefully that, that had come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's, <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. 
And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate Hey, at West Ham, it was a great time with the club. And I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contribution to that success the club had. So, um, yes, it, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it as long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's... I think the that kind of... Uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and revered sort of comes maybe maybe longer maybe in longer not some sort of immediately after you finish playing but in the long term when um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend and, and I always joke and say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70 and I think the, the whatever the word is I'm not sure adulation or recognition or whatever it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. 
I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management or management courses, but there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, which I take it into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.